Thank you for joining me, Samudu. Thank you for having me. So you're the director of the Global Legal Studies Center at UW-Madison Law School. What sort of topics have you focused on or taught lately as it relates to climate change and policy? This semester, I'm teaching international human rights law. and Today's lecture was actually on environmental issues and climate change. But I do teach a separate course on climate law and human rights. My focus has been looking at the intersection between human rights and climate change. Can you give me an overview of that? How exactly do they relate to each other? If you look at the consequences of climate change, starting with weather events all the way down to water shortages and food shortages, climate change has a huge impact on the lives of people everywhere. And that means that their enjoyment of rights can be affected by the consequences of climate change. So whether you look at right to life, because people have died as a result of these severe weather events and climate-related issues, to right to health, because climate change has a huge impact on people's health, including mental health, water shortages, food shortages, and climate migration, because people are displaced as a result of climate change or forced to move as a result of climate change. So that has an impact on rights as well. Many of the protected rights can be affected by climate change. So that's what I study. And then you also have small island states that might become uninhabitable because of climate change. And some small islands associated with these states have disappeared due to sea level rise associated with climate change and, again, these extreme weather events. And the UN has recognized that some of these islands could become uninhabitable in 10 to 15 years' time. Climate change has a huge impact on the lives of people and the enjoyment of rights. So you mentioned the United Nations, and you're actually attending this year's climate conference, which will be happening starting this Thursday. So for listeners who aren't familiar with this annual meeting, what normally takes place over the course of this conference? So every year, the conference of parties, those are the states that have signed on to the climate agreement, meet every year at different locations around the world. And this year's meeting will be in Dubai, and it's the 28th such meeting. So they have an agenda every year. They come up with different sort of things to focus on. But this year's COP is particularly important because under the Paris Agreement, states agreed to what is called the global stock take. In other words, this is their report card to see how states have fared with the commitments they have made under the Paris Agreement called the Nationally Determined Contributions or NDCs. So states have to report on what progress or lack of it (laughs) that they have made with regard to the emission reduction commitments they made under the Paris Agreement. And this is taking place in Dubai for the first time. So they have to report every five years. And this is the first time that states will be reporting. So this year's COP is particularly important from that point of view. In addition to the official negotiations, there are lots of side events that NGOs and other groups put together, and that will be taking place alongside the official negotiations as well. Just to clarify, this is the first stock take that's happened? That's right, yeah. And so what specifically are they evaluating? What kind of agreements are they going to be looking back on? 
as I mentioned, under the Paris Agreement, states were asked to come up with their national commitments. That means the emission reduction targets that they will implement at the national level. So the stock take is to see how each state is doing with regard to the commitments they made under the Paris Agreement. So whether they are meeting those commitments, where they are, and in addition to the stock take, states are also required to increase their ambition, increase the level of commitments they made. So they have to come up with their increased ambition as well, in addition to the stock take, basically, the report card. I'm curious, too, you mentioned that sometimes, or more often than not, nations aren't successful when it comes to meeting their goals. How much do these negotiations actually affect climate change policy internationally? And what are the consequences if nations don't follow through? Well, your question actually relates to one of the major drawbacks of the international system itself, because international law is based more on cooperation than on imposing sanctions on non-complying states. And the sanctions are usually limited to the security realm, uh, so international peace and security, uh, which falls within the mandate of the UN Security Council. With regard to other areas, states have to cooperate with one another and, you know, try and fulfill their obligations in good faith. If they don't do that, then it's really hard to, you know, hold their feet to the fire, basically. But these negotiations are important because it gives the forum a place for states to talk about their problems they have in implementing, negotiate something that's workable for everybody. Of course, as you can imagine, when almost 200 states are negotiating, it becomes quite contentious because states are different. They have different agendas, different levels of development, different problems. So on the one hand, it becomes unwieldy in some instances when so many states are involved. But it's also part of the democratic process uh, because it gives an opportunity for everybody to be in the same place and to be able to voice their concerns and negotiate. It seems like a lot of pressure as it relates to the climate conference specifically for nations to comply with obligations would be coming from public attention. Is that something that you've noticed? Is it more an idea of the people paying attention that truly puts on the pressure? I think so. And especially the younger generation is really asking governments to do more because they will be affected much more than the current generation because it's their future that is in jeopardy because of climate consequences. And scientists have definitely said that the consequences will be worse in the future than what we are seeing now. And there was a recent report which said that States have to go carbon neutral by 2034. The earlier date that was given by scientists was 2050 to go carbon neutral, but they have advanced that date to 2034 because these consequences are happening faster than expected. 
So that does not leave us much time to go carbon neutral, basically 10 years to do that. So I think there's increased public attention to the issue, but especially by the younger generation. They are calling upon states to do much more because they are facing a pretty bleak future. And do you think that carbon neutral goal is workable? And if so, what strategies do you think would be most effective to make that happen? The good news is that we know what we have to do, like switching to renewables, cleaner transportation, being more efficient with what we are doing, more energy efficient, going for better public transportation and things like that, more electric cars. But we are not doing it fast enough and we are not doing enough to help developing countries to improve their living standards and do it in a sustainable way. Unfortunately, the window of opportunity is getting closer, but technology is there and we have the know-how. It's just that it has become a huge political issue as well, unfortunately. So there's not enough action and it's not fast enough. As an attendee, what are the main issues that you'll be focusing on? What are your goals for this year's conference? The loss and damage mechanism, I think, is going to be an important issue because this is where some of the small island states have been lobbying for because they are at the receiving end of climate action. They are at the ground zero of climate action, actually. Some of the islands will become uninhabitable in 10 to 15 years' time. So they have been lobbying since negotiations began in early 1990s to have a mechanism to help them cope with some of these irreversible consequences. So a fund was established at LASCOP in Egypt to help with these loss and damage, uh, damages that some of these countries are experiencing. But the details have not been worked out. So I'm hoping that some of the details will be worked out. There will be more contributions coming into the fund at this COP. And also, I'm hoping that climate justice and human rights will feature more prominently, but I'm not very hopeful about that because in the past, it has been quite controversial. And one of the things that I'm hoping will happen is that the major emitters will take more responsibility to address climate change and improve or advance their ambition of emission reduction. So that we'll be able to meet the goal of going carbon neutral. For folks who will be following along as the conference happens in Dubai, what things do you think that they should look out for? What should people pay attention to? I think people should pay attention to the fact that this is a global problem. And although we tend to think that these small island states are far away and, you know, far away from us, We are in this together, whether we are in Wisconsin or in Dubai or, you know, in the Maldives or Tuvalu, everybody will be affected by climate change, of course, to different degrees. I think in Wisconsin, we are better off than most people around the world. But even in the United States, people are being relocated due to climate change. People are awaiting relocation, like communities in Alaska. So nobody's immune or nobody will escape the consequences of climate change. So it's important to look at this issue because all of us 
are affected, all of us will be more affected in the future. Each of us has a responsibility to address climate change in the way we can. But of course, we also need to hold our policymakers accountable for much bigger action because, you know, big action has to come from the government level. For folks who do want to get involved on a local level, for example, here Mm -hmm. in Dane County, what would you recommend? There are lots of things that we can do, starting with recycling, which all of us do. And we are, you know, it's automatic. Every two weeks we put our recycling. But at the same time, you know, even things we do on a daily basis, like even our diet has an impact. I'm not saying that the government should dictate what we eat, (laughs) but being aware of our carbon footprint in the global north is very important. Try and go for solar energy if possible, you know, and also our electronic waste. We are used to needing (laughs) the latest electronic gadget. I mean, do we really need all that? So there are lots of things that we can do to reduce our carbon footprint. The decisions we make have an impact thousands of miles away and into the future. It's really the future generations, our children and grandchildren, who will be affected more by the decisions we make today, as well as the smaller communities and states that contributed least to the problem that will be affected the most. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Sumudu. Thank you so much for having me. That was Professor Sumudu Atapatu director of the Global Legal Studies Center at UW-Madison Law School. She shared her perspective on the annual United Nations Climate Conference, which she's attending in Dubai later this week. She says that human rights and climate change are inextricably tied, and the nations of the world need to prepare. 